Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, my name is Amy Weinfurter, and I am a Master of Environmental Management candidate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. I'm in the studio today with Todd Wilkinson, who recently published Last Stand, Ten Turtles' Quest to Save a Troubled Planet. The book applies Wilkinson's 25 years of environmental journalism to Ted Turner's unique and largely unsung blend of conservation and capitalism. Mr. Wilkinson, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here, Amy. Thanks. Uh, so to start out, Ted Turner is best known as the uh, colorful and outspoken founder of CNN. What were your first impressions of him, and what did you first make of his involvement in environmental conservation? I first met Ted Turner in 1992. He was, uh, at that point, involved in um, evolving from being Ted Turner, the media mogul, Ted Turner, the man who had won the America's Cup by sailing the boat Courageous, to becoming what we call today as a media mogul and someone whom I would call an eco-capitalist humanitarian. He had moved to uh, Bozeman, Montana, or purchased a ranch outside of town, a large piece of property, booted all of the cattle off, and immediately set out to replace them with bison, and it caused quite a stir in the Western hinters. Uh, and what pushed you to explore her story further in a book? Why did you feel it, it needed to be told? Well, so back then, Turner was a, a, a new arrival in the West. He really came West and started to reinvent himself in many ways. And at that point, this experiment that he had, he's today the largest landowner, or second largest landowner in America with about 2 million acres of land. And he started buying up big properties and putting bison on them. Today he has about 55,000 bison spread across a, a dozen and a half ranches. And back then nobody knew where this was going to go. And so I started, I picked up the story. I had interviewed him subsequently over the years and then picked up the story about eight years ago to sort of explore what, what had actually happened on the land and also this huge arc of global philanthropy that he had uh, been involved in. Yeah, he works um, extensively with the UN and, and with nuclear disarmament Absolutely. as well. Um, in, in talking with, with him, um, as you describe in the book, you, you mentioned the way um, sort of unlocking his childhood and his motivations were key to understanding his philanthropy and specifically his environmental work. Uh, how do you think uh, this kind of insight is important in terms of um, placing his philanthropy in kind of a larger context. Well, you know, we all are products of where we've come from. And Ted sort of fundamentally views the world from the perspective of an underdog. He has been a technology disruptor. He's been what Malcolm Gladwell calls an, a classic outlier. He's someone who sees up, peers around corners and sees opportunities. He sees where things are going. And so just as he anticipated media, the arrival of 24-hour news with CNN and uh, creating TBS, the superstation, by hooking up this backwater cable television channel to satellites. Similarly, with the environment, he has uh, seen opportunities there to restore the environment while uh, modestly making a profit and making it economically sustainable. So um, that's sort of the foundation. With regard to his dad, his dad was a very hard-driving figure uh, involved in the advertising business, and uh, uh, Ted unfortunately lost his, his father early in life due to tragic circumstances, but it, it really created this, uh, this thirst for Ted uh, not only to succeed, but to be recognized. Uh, and... Kind of going off of that, um, sort of his um, game-changing approach, he's, as you mentioned, worked a lot with bison, <laughs> um, yeah. which generated some controversy. And in the book, you, you say that there are totem species for him. Uh, and I was wondering if you could touch a bit more on how um, getting into conservation because of a love of a certain species, which ended up having, obviously, far greater environmental ramifications, um, offers, you know, a model or kind of a commentary on how, you know, the different parts of species conservation versus larger 
landscape conservation fit Ab- together. Absolutely. Well, I think all of us are, are moved to act on the things that we love that make us passionate. And we don't know uh, where those things are necessarily going to begin. But for Ted Turner, it began with thinking about, he used to watch uh, cowboy and Indian movies as a kid, and he always uh, took the side of Native Americans. And he was thinking about bison. You know, as a a totem species, we had bison on uh, buffalo nickels and uh, Native Americans on the other side. And Ted Turner always thought, you know, how can we put a people and a species on our, our coin saying that we value it and yet look at the plight of what's happened to Native Americans throughout history. And with bison, you know, once more than 30 million animals, the most prolific large mammal in the lower 48, decimated, um, driven to near extinction of maybe a few thousand survivors at the most, we came so close to erasing them of the Plains bison. And so Ted Turner always had sympathy for bison. And he realized, though, that if he were ever to bring them back in a substantial way, you needed land because they're wide-ranging species in the middle of the West. And uh, so that's ultimately what brought Ted Turner into conservation. And, and since that time, um, his agenda has broadened dramatically. Um, you mentioned before his, his realization that bison would require land, and that made me think of his... Um, I guess maybe the time he first got his feet wet in rewilding species with the release of um, that bear and (laughs) panthers in Florida. Uh, I was wondering, how do you see his current work as coming out of that initial approach? Um, Has he sort of kept a moderated version of that same (laughs) style? Um, And how has learning more about um, or taking a more scientifically managed approach to bison moderated (laughs) that instinct? You know, Turner, like lots of things, he he has this vague notion of how he wants to get to a place. He just doesn't know how to get there. And so he enlists great people to help get him there. That's the first thing. And his understanding of the natural world has evolved over the years. And uh, initially, you mentioned he released uh, bears and, and cougars. You know, those were captive animals. He had a plantation in South Carolina. And he decided to rewild another plantation by turning those uh, tame animals loose and got in trouble. And he vowed to himself that one day he would have big enough uh, land tracks where these wide-ranging species could be wild and find a home and that uh, wild animals would get there and be offered a a safe haven. And so over the years... uh, you know, he has brought in experts who have helped him realize uh, a far grander vision. And in many ways, people today look to him around the world as perhaps the consummate eco-capitalist who is proving that this dichotomy that exists in today's society in our polemical world of environment versus economy, that it's really involves a false choice, um, that want you can do one without harming the other. Uh, and the book also highlights his tendency to work across sectors, as you mentioned, and kind of shake up um, business as usual and the silos between policy, um, private, and um, nonprofit, nonprofit work. Um, and it, it sounds like you think you need the environmental movement or that the environmental movement needs um, people like him to kind of be that disruptor. Is that accurate? Absolutely. You know, today what we need, we uh, people in academia, um, people in the business world, we talk theoretically about how sustainability is supposed to work on the land. But in Ted Turner's case, while he's not perfect, um, he learns from his mistakes, he is a tangible example out there, I think a counterpoint to business as usual. And as Turner will say, Capitalism isn't the problem. Democracy isn't the problem. It's how we've been practicing capitalism and how we've been practicing democracy. And that um, instead of approaching uh, business as a a proposition that requires plundering the environment, we need to approach it in ways in which we aren't foisting the costs of production onto the public and destroying the environment along the way. And uh, he has set out to prove that, and, and I think... It's dem- it's writ large, certainly in the American West. 
And I wonder if you see him, um, he certainly occupies a unique niche. Um, how do you see this maybe rippling out into a larger trend, um, both with sort of the, um, the other plutocrats he associates with um, and sort of across the environmental uh, movement as well? Well, he's had already had a dramatic impact. Uh, in addition to uh, what his rewilding work has done in the West, I should know as should note that, for example, on his Flying D Ranch southwest of Bozeman, Montana, near where I live, today it has all of the major mammals that existed there at the end of the Pleistocene, and so he has grizzly bears, the largest wolf pack in the lower 48, elk, moose, bison. Uh, pronghorn antelope. He has wolverines there and bobcats and mountain lions. And But apart from that, something I, I find really interesting. In the late 90s, he gave a billion dollars to the United Nations. It stunned people because in America, it seems to be, there seems to be a split opinion on the value of the UN. And Ted says, you know, the UN serves this invaluable role in the world in really bringing people together, and the things that it does could not be replicated today. The second thing that Turner did is he leaned on fellow plutocrats. Uh, he also leaned on Forbes magazine, and he said instead of just honoring the world's richest list, people who sit on their wealth and hoard it, they ought to be recognizing people who are magnanimous and give back to the society that has helped them prosper. And that has really helped bring a sea change. Uh, he influenced Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett, for example, and they're doing great things. He also has uh, was one of the early people to sign on to the Giving Pledge. The Giving Pledge has, ha- has conservatives uh, and progressives alike, uh, people who have done well in business, and who have agreed to give away half of their wealth before they die to charitable organizations. And so uh, on a number of fronts, I, I think Ted has standing to be able to lean on you know, people in the so-called 1% and uh, make them realize their social responsibility to the rest of humanity. Uh, and you touched again on his, his work with the UN Foundation. Um, and he, you asked, the book goes into his work um, on women's rights, um, as well as on um, sort of youth empowerment. Uh, how do you think he, or how do you think he sees, or how do you see those those different components kind of fitting together into a broader broader vision of philanthropy? Well, it's interesting. So Ted Turner started as an Ayn Rand disciple <laughs> early in his life, and ultimately rejected Rand um, that objectivism and and said instead of saying greed is good, he says greed is bad. And one of the things I find really interesting, he was married to the actress Jane Fonda for 10 years, and they had a profound influence on each other. One of the things that Jane helped bring to the fore in Ted's consciousness is the fact that half of humanity, I'm talking about women, um, have had to deal with varying degrees of inequality in the world, and it has had a profound impact on quality of life around the world. And Ted says, you know, we need, we men, we need to take responsibility and and admit that we have been at fault in this throughout history. And one of the areas that Ted is most sympathetic to is trying to create opportunities for women, uh, namely girls, in providing access to education and improving environmental quality because in the world wherever you find acute poverty, most likely the people who are bearing the, the toughest part of that burden are women and the families that they're raising. And so he has taken this on. He's become a hardcore, dedicated feminist. Uh, he is out there evangelizing whenever he can, calling upon uh, the world uh, to fess up to the fact that it has not treated uh, the, the non-male gender very well. And Interestingly enough, today you have Kathy Calvin, who heads the UN Foundation, and uh, she's become a a great voice, along with people like Sharon Sandberg and uh, uh, Melinda Gates, uh, in bringing these these issues to the fore. So, um, you know, I don't think anyone would have predicted that out of Ted Turner, (laughs) the Ted Turner of the early 1960s. Yeah, it's it's an interesting contrast with sort of the picture. Um, painted of his his youth. <laughs> yes. 
Um, and I guess to, uh, to, to kind of um, switch gears a little bit, <laughs> um, the book sort of talks about Ted's work as being grounded in his love of the Flying D Ranch um, and kind of a, a, a local belonging um, to the ranch and to that community in Montana. Um, and it also talks about or contrasts that approach um, to sort of the boom and bust economic cycles associated with mining and with sort of speculative real estate development. Um, how do you how important do you think that local perspective is in influencing both his his business and his conservation decisions about managing bison? Well, again, Ted has set out um, not to preach at people, but what he wants to do is set an example by his actions. You know, all of us, no matter what community we're living in, we've dealt with the consequences of growth that have transformed communities. And as a result, our connection to the natural world has winnowed and it's been affected. We talk about nature deficit disorder as something affecting our young people, increasing disconnection from nature. An interesting uh, point to this is that there are studies that suggest that people who spend more time connected to nature are, are more empathetic, they're more compassionate, um, they're bigger givers in terms of philanthropy. And this is something that certainly has had an impact on Ted Turner. With regard to his burgeoning land ethic, you know, in Montana, after uh, the arrival of the movie A River Runs Through It, it became this point of pilgrimage for lots of people buying up lifestyle properties there. And it had a huge impact on wildlands. Um, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, about 20 million acres with Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Park as it, its heart. It's the wild, wildest intact ecosystem in the lower 48. Um, you know, they call it the American Serengeti there in terms of wildlife diversity. And Ted being one of the biggest players, private property players in the ecosystem, takes his role seriously. So today you can literally see on opposite sides of a mountain, I have one chapter called mm -hmm. Ted's Side of the Mountain, in which I contrast Ted Turner's approach to land management, in which he put one, one of the largest conservation easements on the land, um, meaning that it will never be developed. Just five homes can be put on the property. It's 113,000 acres. Um, it extends 20 miles across from the Madison River on the west to the famed Gallatin River on the east. It's well-known globally among fly-fishing people. And on the south is the Spanish Peaks. And on the other side of the Spanish Peaks is the Big Sky Resort, where a uh, very high-end development has gone in. And essentially what's happened in that area, the Madison mountain range has been decapitated by development. In other words, wildlife that normally would migrate up and down the mountain range, they wander into those developments. If you're a grizzly bear, uh, it becomes a, a, a black hole. You wander in alive, but you never come out alive. And so Ted Turner on his side of the mountain, thanks to that conservation easement, uh, he has all of this abundant wildlife that is healthy, exists healthy populations. That wildlife scatters onto the public land, neighboring public lands. And to, you know, today Ted Turner arguably caused a ruckus when he arrived uh, more than 20 years ago, but today people are very thankful to Ted Turner for protecting those landscapes. And uh, one thing I should add, he has 5,000 bison there today, some of which are used for production. Um, and uh, you can buy a bison meal at Ted's Montana Grill restaurant. But those bison are managed sustainably. And so uh, this isn't some daddy Warbucks proposition of where he's subsidizing this as a hobby. He has found a way to make those lands economically sustainable while at the same time really enhancing the ecology. And as you well know, there is a, a provocative movement in the country called rewilding, which seeks to restore damaged landscapes, and it's, it's really catching on. Uh, and it seems like a lot of communities in the West um, face that same quandary between um, longer term, perhaps um, less immediately profitable activities um, with regards to natural resource management versus more 
um, bust and boom cycles. Um, how do you, as someone who, who not only wrote this book, but who's covered environmental journalism in the West for <laughs> about two decades, how do you, do you see the needle shifting either way in terms of the way communities balance that decision um, and approach it if they don't have someone you know, like Turner to kind of um, catalyze a third kind of, of capitalism? You know, this is the great challenge facing the 21st century. Uh, we look at a global population on the macro level that's going uh, north of 7 billion people, swelling toward 9, 10, maybe 11 billion people by the end of this decade. And there is going to be a crisis when it comes to resources. You know, particularly when you have developing countries that want to realize the same standard of living that we have. So the question is, where are those resources going to come from? At the same time, we're dealing with climate change. And it's something that I've been writing about for 20 years going back to the uh, first Bush administration. Is You know, it's interesting. Uh, President George Bush the first was someone who was very progressive, and the scientists around him recognized that climate change was real, and we've been fighting this battle ever since. But climate change is very real. It's affecting large landscapes across America and in, in, in the West. Uh, computer models suggest that things are going to be a lot hot, hotter and a lot drier in an area that's already arid. And so Ted Turner, I think, offers a contrast and with regard to what we can do. You know, most of us live in places where we have control over our green lawns, and we can promote uh, diversity. You know, it's interesting. Something as major as monarch butterflies vanishing, they're in danger of, of, of winking out in our world. There are things that we can do. We can plant gardens to help pollinators and, and, and help other species. We can refrain from pouring poisons down our drain or letting it getting into water systems. Um, you know, we can change out light bulbs, something seemingly simple, but when you would do you do that and you extrapolate it across millions of people, you can have profound changes. Uh, one of the things that's a, a core to the Turner ethic is realizing that the best dollars earned are the dollars saved through conservation. And so uh, I'll give one more example. Ted Turner has a lot of rivers running through his land. Um, and if you have clean water that's passed through your property, it means that municipalities living downstream don't have to pay for heavy, wa uh, uh, expensive water treatment plants. And so it makes a lot of sense to take care of nature, and nature will take care of us. Uh, you have New York City um, that relies upon a natural reservoir, and uh, you know the city's taken uh, great measures to ensure that the forest is healthy because the, the forest serves as a natural filtration system for the water supply. And so what I think Ted Turner does is he's taken the ideals that... Uh, Paul Hawken has talked about with natural capital, and again, he's applied them on the landscape. And I think it is a vitally important conversation that we need to have because uh, global population is the big elephant in the room. Yes. Uh, and you talked a little bit about ecosystem services, uh, which made me think about the the kind of public-private <laughs> tension between managing resources, especially in the West, where it's often a patchwork. Absolutely. Um, and it seems like Turner has become a real resource for a lot of state agencies, um, which has generated both um, praise and controversy. In, um, in 2010, several environmental groups actually sued the state of Montana um, because they were concerned that their cooperation with Turner's enterprise, which was private, contradicted um, their mission to manage wildlife for public goods. Right. Um, and in blending sort of the business and conservation sectors, um, is there a way that concerns about maintaining nature for nature's sake um, and these kind of arguments should be addressed? And I'm curious um, how you've seen Turner personally um, sort of understand the line between nature and wild and how that fits into his work. Absolutely. So in America, we operate according to the North American wildlife model. It's distinctive in the world in that, you know, we, we nearly wiped, off a wiped out a lot of species with settlement. And so 
the hunting and angling community has been um, some of the most important conservationists in bringing back species. Uh, Turner grew up as a hunter and an angler. He appreciates the fact that, that probably the signature element of the North American model is that wildlife is public. It belongs to all of us. And so Ted owns these big pieces of property. He has private bison on them, which, and I should note, he does not raise them according to a cattle model. As someone said, I challenge you to say what is wilder, a bison that's roaming on Ted Turner's land and doesn't come into contact with people for much of the year, or a bison bull in Yellowstone National Park that's dodging cars and thousands of people on a daily basis at Old Faithful Geyser during the height of summertime. Ted does not want to tame bison. He, that's not what he sets out to do. And yet there's that assertion that's made about it. Um, but the key is, is that he manages his properties in a way that's friendly to wildlife. He provides a lot of habitat for public wildlife that, like the tide, comes onto his land at various points of the year and then drifts off onto the public land surround it. You know, in the West today, you'll find a lot of private property owners who are raising livestock, as an example, cattle, who have zero tolerance for elk, for example, that come onto their property and compete uh, for the cattle with grassland. Ted views the fact that he's a large property owner as an obligation and realizes that he sits on a lot of great habitat for public wildlife and uh, doesn't view it as a burden. He views it as an opportunity to enhance this rich wildlife legacy that really belongs to all of us. And, uh, you know, though some people have looked askance at his private bison herd, you know, the fact is, is that state regulations in the West, some states regarded bison, the most prolific native uh, North American mammal on the Great Plains, as exotic species. They're exotic even compared to to cattle. And uh, so he has had to work and live within the parameters of state laws, and uh, I'm not saying this to be defensive. I'm just saying that there's far more than meets the eye with, uh, you know, Turner. Um, and I guess in terms of you brought up the the contrast between bison and cattle, another species Turner has worked a lot with are the prairie dogs. Absolutely. Uh, and I was wondering if you could kind of sort of see how those those two species contrast in terms of their connection to Turner and how he's gone about um, sort of reintroducing those to the landscape. Absolutely. So, again, Ted Turner thinks of himself as an underdog. He also thinks of bison and prairie dogs as underdogs. Uh, In the case of bison, having these natural animals out on the landscape, animals that evolved over time, over millennia, with changes in climate and uh, variations in weather, they're adapted to the terrain. You know, they have withstood previous periods of warming and, and periods in which the temperature, average temperature was colder. And so they're adapted to these Western landscapes, better adapted than cattle in many ways, which are really bred to be more docile. And so as a result, bison are also more resistant to predators. So in areas where there's been traditionally zero tolerance for restoring grizzly bears and wolves, by having bison out there, they're more resistant to those predators. Um, they have uh, adapted their behavior. They group up in a, a defense strategy. And so you don't have these huge amounts of public and private resources that get directed at having to remove predators, and you're suffering fewer losses. That's one thing. With regard to prairie dogs... You have five species of prairie dogs. Almost all of them are imperiled. And in the case of, of what was the most abundant prairie dog species, the black-tailed prairie dog, it's now been reduced to just 2% of its range. And so people think of prairie dogs and they think, ah, just another rodent. You know, it's interesting. When Lewis and Clark were passing through the West, they sent back a packet of things that they had discovered in the West one of the things that they sent back was a live prairie dog to President Thomas Jefferson, who at one point thought of establishing prairie dogs on the new White House lawn. And so, 
The interesting thing to me about prairie dogs is that they, as bison are, are keystone species. And so where you have prairie dogs, you have dozens upon dozens of species that are associated or obligate, which is to say that where prairie dogs exist, other species exist. And the reason is, is that prairie dog burrows, that whole system of burrows and little cities of prairie dogs, they provide incredible habitat for uh, ground nesting and burrowing animals. And in addition to that, they change the, they affect the landscape. And so you have a diversity of plant communities that exist there. You have uh, water that holds up better in the soil there. And that's important, of course, when the West starts to dry out. But what, what's, what's probably most poignant is that where you have prairie dogs, you have species like the black-footed ferret, the most endangered land mammal in America, that simply wouldn't exist without prairie dogs. And in fact, black-tailed uh, or black-footed ferrets, many people thought they had gone extinct, and then they discovered a small cluster of them a few decades ago. And so today we're trying, we as a country, are trying to restore black-footed ferrets but we have to build prairie dogs, uh, build up their numbers again. And Turner, for an example, has gone from inheriting a population of about 10,000 prairie dogs across his land, and he's been involved in what he calls prairie dog uh, escalation, and he today has a quarter of a million prairie dogs on his land. And it it is extraordinary to walk through a prairie dog town and find find this diversity of species that are supported by these little rodent-like animals. Yeah. Um, I guess sort of speaking of uh, enjoying the, the, the wonders of, of reserves, one of the things um, Ted Turner has worked on um, with Nelson Mandela is these peace parks, um, which um, are envisioned as being um, a quote-unquote green glue um, in places um, like, for instance, the de- demilitarized zone between North and South Korea um, that have a lot of political conflict. Um, I was wondering um, sort of if you could speak to those and to um, the idea of nature as a common gathering place um, and how that plays into um, a reconciliation strategy in these kinds of areas. Absolutely. I was able, through this book, to interview a num- many notable people. I was able to interview Gorbachev and Anand and Carter and Gore, all Nobel Peace Prize winners. Uh, but I also had a great conversation with the late Richard Holbrook, who was a fan of, of Ted Turner, going back to the time when he was uh, uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N. And Turner played a, a key role then in helping the U.S. pay off its membership dues. We were in arrears. But one of the things that really captivated Holbrook was this idea of Mandela enlisting Ted Turner to get involved with the Peace Park concept. Shortly after Mandela came out of uh, Robben Island and was elected president, one of the initiatives that he championed was this Peace Park concept. And there's one transboundary park in Southern Africa uh, that helps sort of unite five different countries. And all in the name of wildlife conservation and realizing the incredible value, ecological and economic value to the region. And so the Peace Park concept now has broadened. And one of Ted Turner's maxims is that friends don't bomb each other. And similar to what we were talking about earlier with uh, exposure to nature, making people, people more empathetic and compassionate, is that these Peace Parks really have the potential to give stakeholders on either side of them an opportunity to come together and be mutual caretakers of nature. In the case of the Korean DMZ, 155 miles across the the isthmus of, of Korea, dividing North Korea and South Korea on both sides, you have uh, nations with nuclear weapons. You have uh, the potential for a disaster should conflict ever erupt. And right in the middle of this no man's land that exists in the, in the DMZ, you have by default this great profound nature preserve. You have endangered migratory cranes that use the habitat there. You have what many conservation biologists believe are these vestige populations of, 
of tigers there on the peninsula. And here in one of the most populous areas of the world, you also have emur uh, leopards there. So you have these species, and it's an incredible wealth that both of these countries have, you know, they don't have access to yet, but Turner would like to have that as a peace park uh, created, and he's been promoting that. Potentially, it could be a green glue that could unite the Koreas one day. He holds that out that hope. But if you think about peace parks in other areas of the world, there have been proposals to create a peace park between Israel and Palestine. There have been proposals to create a peace park between India and Pakistan in the Kashmir region. All of these conflict zones, there have been areas where Mandela, I think rightly so, realized that nature can bring people together. And indeed, here in the U.S., going back 100 years, one of the first peace parks ever born was Glacier and Waterton Lakes National Parks, these adjacent parks up along the U.S. and Canada border. And they were designed uh, as an expression of those gestures of goodwill and realizing that wildlife realize no boundaries, but they, you know, national boundaries, they walk wherever the habitat is. So that's the premise anyway. It's a really interesting turn from wildlife as potential sources of conflict to potential sources of peace and also it sounds like income. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, And I guess um, on, on that note, was there anything, the green glue is a really kind of jumps out as a really um, great and surprising idea from the book. I'm wondering what most surprised you in the process of compiling this, either about Turner or about sort of the um, the landscapes you discovered while you were interviewing him. Well, over the couple decades that I've known Ted Turner, and I think everyone who's really close to him would acknowledge is that he's mellowed profoundly. He's become far more reflective when I met him in the early 1990s, he was this cocky, strapping figure, newly married to Jane Fonda, who believed, you know, he had the world on a string. And I think nature has humbled Ted Turner. I, I think that, uh, you know, the other thing is he, he, he has become more reflective in thinking about the legacy that he's passing on to his own grandkids. Uh, I'll just share one anecdote, if I may. Ted Turner, uh, his father had taken his own life when Ted was 24, and emerging as a father figure and a green mentor was Jacques Cousteau. All of us who grew up during the 60s remember and 70s remember Cousteau on those National Geographic specials and opening up the world ocean ecosystems to us. Well, Cousteau also had a huge impact on Ted Turner and said, Ted, as a media person, you have an obligation and an opportunity to reach millions of people and help educate people about the extent of the environmental crisis that's bearing down on the world. And Turner took that to heart and uh, during his CNN days created the first environmental reporting bureau. It didn't exist at the three major networks, but Ted had one at CNN. And he ran uh, sometimes controversial wildlife documentaries that the networks wouldn't touch. And so at the end of his life, Cousteau had become cynical. And there's uh, an incident in the book in which Turner and Cousteau are talking. And it was Turner who leaned upon Cousteau. Turner loves to quote uh, Thomas Babington Macaulay's Horatius at the Bridge as this rallying cry. And it was Turner who leaned upon Jacques Cousteau and said, I don't accept your cynicism. I believe in young people. If there's even a 3% chance that we can reverse these very serious crises, I'm going to adhere to that. And indeed, Jean-Michel Cousteau is one, one of Ted's contemporaries and the surviving son of Jacques Cousteau said that Jacques Cousteau rallied at the very end. And so Turner has this way, this uncanny, sometimes crazy way of influencing people. And I think what most surprised me is his impact on young people. He really believes in young people. To this day, he still gets together with a cadre of environmental journalists in Atlanta and invites them in and says, you know, go out there and educate the world. And uh, 
he takes that role seriously, also takes our obligation seriously to future generations. Uh, and the book sort of goes into that contrast between optimism and pessimism. I'm curious if you think um, what the role of optimism is in approaching some of the big challenges that both Turner and Cousteau faced. You know, I over the course of the research for this book, I interviewed uh, lots of prominent ecologists and people uh, dealing with nuclear issues and population issues and the biodiversity crisis. And there is, in some corners, this profound sense of pessimism, believing that maybe we've passed the point of no return, that uh, in terms of overshooting our ability to respond, um, it might be too late. And so in talking with someone like Ted Turner, who is a voracious reader, someone who is a great friend uh, of uh, of major policymakers, you know, Turner says that anything but optimism is simply unacceptable and that we owe that to our kids and our grandkids. We owe them uh, the vote of confidence that that they can rise to the challenges and make a difference. And, you know, it's really, when you're talking to global experts, some of whom say it's game over, it's a, a chastening experience. And so, uh, you know, Turner is a doer. Turner is someone who, as the underdog, uh, was told that we can't do things, and then he prevailed and, and made things happen. And so, on the one hand, he'll say, we have 50 years to make serious progress in addressing the, these problems. And on the other hand, he's someone who believes that if we all work together, if we embrace systemic uh, solutions, that we can make a profound difference. But, you know, what's sobering is that the clock is ticking. Uh, and as a, a veteran journalist interviewing a huge media mogul, I'm wondering if you got, if you talked about or reflected on sort of the state of media in that in that process, um, and what you think the current state of environmental reporting is doing um, in terms of meeting those challenges. Absolutely. Um, so Ted is often asked what he thinks of CNN these days, and he said if he were still there, he would have a lot less fluff. He would have uh, more programming that focuses on real issues. An interesting anecdote here is that uh, during those AOL Time Warner days when he owned a lot of, of AOL Time Warner stock, uh, was worth $11 billion, one of his dreams was to assemble sort of a dream team of moderators. Uh, think of it as Charlie Rose-style moderators, of bringing, um, calling them together, statespeople as well, and moderating discussions about the great issues of the day. So instead of engaging in these sort of polemical discussions in which the country parts ways between right and left, Republicans and Democrats, you actually had a push to what some people call the radical middle toward compromise and solutions on things. And Turner really believes that the media plays a crucial role. In fact, he blames the media in part today for the divisiveness in America and thinks that the media needs to step up. to It has a social obligation to our society as a way of sorting out right from wrong and uh, disinformation that exists out there. And I think it was really a lost opportunity. Uh, Ted Turner lost a lot of money in the collapse of AOL Time Warner Worth with the stock. And I think that that would have been maybe the third great iteration of media mogul to eco-capitalist and then turning back to media again and using the media as a fulcrum for exploring, for example, the debt crisis or health care or environmental problems, uh, how we're going to resolve Social Security. Turner really believes that if we put mental horsepower to the challenge and unite the country just as FDR did during World War II, calling for selflessness, which is also another uh, great ideal to which Turner subscribes instead of selfishness, he thinks we could confront a lot of this, uh, a lot of these problems. But central to this 
is that the media plays a role. Um, and in the past few decades, there have been enormous shifts in the media, um, sort of the dissolution of sort of old institutions and the rise of, of news and online mediums. Um, do you think that's affected the way environmental reporting has occurred? Um, is that part of sort of this the sea change? Well, personally, I, I, I think the Internet has had a, a destructive effect um, in the way that our society engages each other, uh, you know, particularly when we talk about lack of civility in, in America. You know, certainly if you look at the cable channels, if you look at uh, Fox News on one side and MSNBC, even if you agree ideologically the sort of one-sidedness, painting the other side as evil, it's really destructive. But beyond that, one of my biggest things, and I should note something here, Ted Turner in many ways is a neo-Luddite. He does not have a cell phone. He generally does not use an iPad. He does not have a computer. He's someone who uh, still watches CNN the old-fashioned way on, on the tube. Um, but personally, I think that this anonymous commentary that exists, while some will say that it is another form of free speech in the blogosphere, uh, personally, I've witnessed a deterioration of the way people engage each other. You know, the old way where you would sign your name to a letter to the editor and it would appear in the newspaper. People took great pride in presenting arguments for whatever they were uh, advocating for at the time or weighing in on. And today, in, in, with this, these anonymous comments, people take pot shots. It's almost like having a, a bulletin board in the town square, and you can go and you can slander or libel anyone at any time, and you don't have to take responsibility for it. And um, I think this is really problematic. And in an earlier conversation, you, you mentioned media's sort of responsibility or ability to make unconscious decisions about environmental challenges more conscious um, and, and to go through more of a process in the public dialogue. I'm wondering what issues, if any, jump out at you as really requiring this, this service from the media that, that aren't getting it or that, that need more attention. Absolutely. The, I, I think one of the biggest issues, and it's one of the most complicated, is this notion of externalities. It's what economists call externalities. And that is the cost of doing business that isn't factored into the product that we buy at the store. So, for example, a hamburger uh, coming from a cow. Often non-factored into that is the huge use of water, the water to grow alfalfa, um, fossil fuels to transport animal to market, to raise that on a corn diet. Um, by extension, the costs of raising the corn using herbicides and insecticides, which then create dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico, all of these things ripple. And I think what most ecologists whom I respect have said is that we haven't taken a, a full accounting. We will fix a short-term price to a given product, and economists will say, well, that accounts for it, but it really doesn't account for what the impact is on the environment, and thus, by extension, society. And similarly, you look at climate change, and you look at um, more potent storms pounding the coastline. And, you know, we talk about adaptation, but what we're not talking about is whether people should rebuild in areas that are going to be chronically hit by big storms and hurricanes. And is that a cost that society should bear? Is it something that should be foisted upon society, or is it something that the private sector should deal with? And I should note that the insurance industry, ironically, is way ahead on this issue and already realizes that it is a, a, a serious—we can't continuously— just rebuild in areas that get pounded, whether it's in the coastal areas or whether it's communities that are burning because of wildfire. And so I think that's an important issue. If we're really going to be fiscally responsible as a society, I think to I think we need to focus on, you know, where we're where we're making our, our best investments. And of course, um, the other four issues that 
that I think are vitally important, and those are addressed in the book because they're the priorities for Ted Turner, and that is uh, the biodiversity crisis. Um, you know, we're on the cusp of the sixth major extinction species extinction episode, climate change, the nuclear issue, and then uh, global poverty and the rising population. What do you think is next for Ted Turner, um, and what are you working on next after after this huge project? Well, I think that Ted, uh, this last phase of his life, it, he's just going to continue to pursue it. Interestingly enough, one of the big questions with the book was, how is Ted going to wrap up his life? Um, will all of these properties be broken up and sold off? Will this great experiment be all for naught? Uh, what about his foundations, the UN Foundation? What about the Nuclear Threat Initiative that he co-founded with Sam Nunn? And so what Turner has done in his will is he's already thought about this. He turned 75 years old in November of last year. And so all of the, his properties will go into the, into the Turner Foundation uh, when he passes. And he has set in place uh, his resources will be applied to keep those ranches in business, um, to, to keep those bison populations viable. And that has huge Im, uh, impacts, again, or... Uh, implications for the public wildlife. So that's all That's all good news. Um, I think Ted, his only lament is that he doesn't have more time. And I really believe that he's a historical figure. Uh, as for what I'm working on, um, I'm out on book tour now for uh, several months, and uh, there are a couple projects that I'm thinking on, and for certain uh, they'll involve something related to the environment and wildlife. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us uh, and for, um, for writing this book. It's a really, really fascinating read. The views and opinions expressed by the interviewers and interviewees as part of On the Environment do not necessarily reflect the views of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, its affiliated faculty, staff, or supporters.